Physician scientists keep one foot in clinical care and the other in the lab, hoping to bridge the gap to help patients. Are breakthroughs on the horizon? You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that drives cures to patients through repurposing current therapies for new uses. And my guest is Dr. David Ticci, a practicing pediatric hematologist, oncologist, a world-class laboratory and clinical researcher, and an instructor in the Department of Pediatrics, Division of Oncology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Dr. Ticci and I are discussing his new research, Repurposing Pharmaceutical and Botanical Medicines for Diseases like Lupus and Autoimmune Lymphoproliferative Syndrome. Dr. Ticci, welcome to ReachMD. Hello, Dr. Glenn. How did you decide to focus part of your life on research, and how did you learn to do all the science? From a young age, I knew that I wanted to go into medicine. I loved science, and I wanted to try to help people. And also at a young age, I decided I want to go into pediatrics and primarily focus on helping children with rare diseases. In college, I did some basic science research in a hematology lab, which opened my eyes to research and made me consider going into it. It was really when I got into my pediatric residency training at D.C. Children's or Children's National Medical Center that I worked with one of the country's leading oncologists, Greg Riemann, doing what's called translational research, moving stuff from the bench to the bedside in pediatric leukemia that I decided I wanted to kind of model myself after him and do both clinical work and do research as well. So what is the focus of your current research? In a big scope, looking at developing novel therapies for children with lymphoid and rare diseases, primarily looking at autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome, systemic lupus erythematosus, and childhood leukemia. And how do you decide what projects to research? It's an excellent question. Um, a lot of it is, as a clinician, in taking care of patients, a lot of times it's noting that there's a gap, that there are patients who have a disease, and some of these patients are not getting better, some of these patients are dying, and then trying to think of ways to help treat them. One of the nice things about being a physician scientist and one of the nice things about being at such an excellent institution like the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is we have lots of excellent physician scientists. So we kind of can see patients that have a rare disease and then kind of talk amongst ourselves on what we might think might be the, the next best treatment. Is there a more formal process for that? I mean, do you get together on a regular basis to do that or is it more informal? A little of both. So there's some informality to it. I mean, me personally, my mentor has been a man named Dr. Stephen Grupp, who was originally at Boston Children's and now is at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And he's been very instrumental in helping my career and supportive um, as I was young on getting some of my ideas off the ground. And the kind of research that you do, is it happenstance? I mean, are we lucky? Is there serendipity involved a lot of the time? Or is there a real process to getting from an idea all the way to something to the patient? I mean, I always have to say in any research, there's a little bit of luck to it. I think that there's lots of brilliant scientists out there. There's lots of brilliant physician scientists out there, and some of them are very successful and some of them are not as successful. And a lot of times they all, both successful ones and unsuccessful ones, have great ideas, and there is some luck that you happen to think of something that happens to work. I mean, there is the thought behind it. A lot of the research that I've done, sometimes it's that I've seen kids in a clinic with a particular disease, and then my knowledge from the lab, sometimes studying totally different diseases, has made me go, I understand how drug A works. 
based on how it works in disease B. And then I have another condition, disease C, that it looks like this drug actually may be the best thing for these patients. And is that what happened in autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome? To a degree, yes. So I was studying the use of a drug called rapamycin in pediatric leukemia, and through understanding that our group and others had done, knew a little bit more of how this drug worked, and it caused cell death in a certain blood cell called BNT lymphocytes part of our immune system. Patients with ALPS have a defect in that same cell type, so it dawned on me that an easy treatment for these patients may be to use a drug that targets the pathway in the abnormal pathway in these children. And so you tested rapamycin, which was a drug that was already out in the marketplace for 20-plus years. What's the impact of testing a existing drug when you find out that it works? It's easier. So there's a lot of, which is important, regulation in our country before you can get a new drug out to patients. So something that is designed, a new designer drug that's designed to hit target X, it might take 10, 15 years before it goes through all the what's called phase one, two, and three trials and the large safety trials before it's available for patients. If you can take an existing agent that's been out there and put it to a new use, that drug's already been through a lot of the safety trials, the large population trials. You know a lot about the agent. So moving it from the bench to the bedside is a bit easier. Of course, you always have to be careful because there can always be untoward side effects that you weren't anticipating in the disease you're using it in. However, you at least have a good idea of what to look for. And how long did it take you to move rapamycin from the bench to the bedside for patients with ALPS? Less than two years. So you compare that two years to what you said, the 10 to 15 years for the new drug development. How much did it cost to get rapamycin from bench to bedside for ALPS patients? A lot less than people would think, probably less than $50,000. And when we compare new drug development, which typically costs these days about a billion dollars, they're not only a huge monetary saving, but also a huge time saving. Would it ever have been likely that a drug company would try and develop a new drug for patients with ALPS? It would be highly unlikely that drug companies because the cost of developing a new agent and getting it through clinical trials is so high that a drug company is unlikely to pick a drug because it'll target a rare disorder. Now, sometimes we get lucky in that they'll design a drug for disease X, and then also that drug works for disease Y, the rare disorder, but it's rare to have a drug company go straight for that. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and I'm speaking with Dr. David Tichy, a pediatric hematologist, oncologist, and clinical researcher at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia about his new research repurposing pharmaceutical and botanical medicines for diseases like lupus and autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome. So tell us about your lupus research with rapamycin and methotrexate. Why is this combination potentially effective? So this also, again, goes back to some of the leukemia research. So looking at rapamycin in leukemia, one of the things, leukemia is a disease that no one agent is going to cure it. So it's really, if we have a new agent, it's combining it with other agents that are out there. And one of the pathways that rapamycin works through interacts with one of the pathways that methotrexate works through in leukemia. So I studied this combination of leukemia and found that these two drugs actually interact favorably together and have a synergistic effect, which means that one plus one equals more than two. Now, this pathway that these two interact with would also make sense in other diseases. And lupus is a condition that is sometimes difficult to treat, and sometimes one agent doesn't treat alone. Methotrexate's been used for lupus for years, 
rapamycin is a drug partially based on work from our group but also groups of others that's now moving to the clinic in lupus patients. However, in a lot of lupus patients, neither one of these drugs alone will work, which made me go, you know, this combination works together effectively from a hypothetical synergistic interaction and leukemia, the same combination should have the same more than one bang for your buck. In lupus as well, these are both very safe, well-tolerated medicines. They have different side effect profiles, so you wouldn't imagine they have overlapping toxicity. So it seemed a logical combination which might add benefit to patients with lupus. So how are you starting this research? So we have one mouse model of lupus in the lab, and there's another probably better mouse model of lupus that we're developing in the lab as well, and we're going to treat lupus mice with both single agents alone, no drug, or both agents together and actually compare response between each individual agent and the combination to see if the combination is better than each individual one alone. Now, in your ALPS research, the mouse model and the human model seem to be very well connected. Is that true in lots of diseases where if it works in the mouse, it works in the humans? It's an excellent question. Yes and no. So sometimes you try something in a mouse and it works very well in a human. Sometimes you try something in a mouse and it doesn't work well in a human. I think a lot of times it's do you have a good model. One nice thing with Alps and with lupus is the models we have are very similar to the human disease from both a phenotype or what symptoms the mice and the people get and from a genetic standpoint. And therefore, a lot of times, the response you see in an animal also you see in a person. On that same note, there are a lot of good drugs and good drug combinations that are probably lost in preclinical testing or ones that make it to the clinical testing that aren't as effective. Do you think there's also a risk that when something doesn't work in the mouse, it doesn't get moved to the humans, although it might work in the human model? Yes. I think there's a very big risk, and I think there probably are agents that may have worked in people and could have been wonder drugs that were lost in the preclinical and animal testing. However, I think going back 60 years, we know that to make that leap to go without that animal model in between is relatively unethical. So unfortunately, we do lose good drugs if they don't work in the mice that may have worked in people. And assuming that this combination of rapamycin and methotrexate works in the mice, how long before it gets to humans? Being that both agents are already at use in lupus relatively quick, I would hope, in the next couple of years. When you finish that research, you'll publish a paper, and hopefully it'll get published in a good journal. When physicians and other scientists read that, are they able to begin to use those drugs immediately on their patients? If it's agents that have been out there for a while and you have patients that are sick, then sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes it depends on a case-by-case -case basis, and it depends on the drugs that you're looking at. Have you done some of that work with your ALPS patients where you actually were able to go and begin to use it before you did the full human clinical trial? Yes. So in that particular case with rapamycin being around for so long, being used in other conditions, we did use it outside of the context of a clinical trial in sick patients. However, we're also now studying it in the context of a clinical trial. And do you need to do anything special to begin using rapamycin before a clinical trial starts? It depends. So sometimes if you use even an existing agent in a new condition, there is a process to determine, do you need permission from the FDA to test it? It's a lengthy process where there's a number of specific questions that have to be asked and criteria that have to be met. Um, in this particular case, it was not felt that rapamycin needed to have FDA approval 
for what's called an IND prior to testing it in kids because it is an agent that's been around for so long. It's been used in similar conditions. It's relatively safe. We had good preclinical work. We're testing it in the context of a clinical trial. Before testing any agent in a clinical trial, it has to go through institutional review boards and ethics committees to make sure that it's a safe and a reasonable thing to pursue. Often the fastest and least expensive way to drive better treatments to patients is to test existing drugs and other therapies for new uses. I want to thank our guest, Dr. David Tichy, a practicing pediatric hematologist, oncologist, a world-class laboratory and clinical researcher, and an instructor in the Department of Pediatrics, Division of Oncology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, for talking to us about his repurposing research breakthroughs in lupus and autoimmune lymphoproliferative syndrome. I'm attorney and Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures, a nonprofit that repurposes existing treatment for new uses. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.